I like your stickers. Very professional. Thanks. You, you're going to have a, have a sticker. Thank you. Oh, Thank you. yes. <laughs> Who said there's no perks to being in science, hey? <laughs> Welcome back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist, get to know them, and find out what makes them tick. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode we're chatting with arachnologist, urban ecologist, and science communicator, Dr. Lizzie Lowe. Lizzie, should I call you Elizabeth? No, I much prefer Lizzie. <laughs> okay. it's, it's good. Dr. Lizzie is great. Dr. Lizzie? Yeah. Lizzie Lowe is a good superhero name. Yeah, I've been told that before, actually. <laughs> they like the alliteration, I definitely wasn't changing it. Your mild-mannered research scientist by day. <laughs> I do get Spider Woman a lot, but I think I'd need something a bit more original than that. Yeah, Spider, Spider Man, Ant Man, all that stuff, sort of taken it by is, yeah. other other people. Mm. <laughs> well, on, on spiders, spiders are gross. Discuss. Yeah, I get a lot of that. <laughs> um, so this is basically my main aim for science communication, is to tell people about how amazing spiders are rather than people telling me they're gross. Yeah. I've never, ever met anyone that doesn't have a spider story, mm. and um, most of them are negative. Everybody has been bitten by a type of spider and loves telling me about it. But every now and then I get someone that tells me about the huntsman that they let live in the corner of their room <laughs> or the, the spider that they named Bob that's had babies on the windowsill or something yeah. like that, and that's kind of what I live for. I love of getting the positive spider images out there because um, there's really very few that will do you any harm and we really should be doing everything we can to encourage spider diversity rather than killing them all. Mm. It makes me so sad to see people that will just indiscriminately kill all insect and spider life. So mm. kind of trying to get the story out there that they're the good guys. It is funny that they've been lumped with this bad reputation considering how yeah. few of them are actually I know, it's harmful so in unfair. any way. When you look at the actual data on how many things kill people, spiders are so far down there on the list. I mean, nobody's died of a spider bite in Australia for 40 years or something. Mm. It's just they're not a big problem at all. I mean, funnel webs um, are present in Sydney. There's a lot of them, and people do come in contact with them. Um, and it, it is awful if you get bitten, but you're not going to die. There's mm. lots of antivenoms, and the funnel web is a very rare case. Most, the vast majority of spiders are tiny, um, fascinating, mm. and not going to do you any harm. I mean, why, why do you think this image has persisted? Yeah, it's a really weird one. I mean, you see those um, movies like, what is it, um, Giant Hairy Spider? <laughs> Eight-legged Eight freaks. freaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I actually think it's got a lot to do with the way they move. People hate... The eight legs and the movement of the, just the spindly kind of mm. um, unpredictability of it as well. I think it's all about lack of knowledge. It's like I really don't, I'm not a fan of snakes in the wild because I'm nervous about them because I don't know how they're going to react. Mm. So I, if I see a snake, I don't know anything about it. So I assume it's going to, you know, attack me. And I think yeah. that's how people feel about spiders. They see a spider and they don't know anything about it, so they assume it's a threat and they get scared by it. Mm. Whereas I see a spider and I know that the the likelihood that it's going to do me any harm is very, very low and I'm fascinated yeah. by it. So, But even then, being cautious of something is different to being phobic of it. Yeah, like, definitely. I'm aware that yeah. a strange dog can do harm, but I'm not phobic mm-hmm. of dogs. Yeah, and spider phobia is a huge thing and it's something that I've actually had to come to terms with. Uh, recently because um, I have been dealing with people that are actually arachnophobes 
and I need to learn to be more sensitive actually because um, <laughs> I was on Twitter the other day and I was um, on I was on the Real Scientists mm. I was curating Real Scientists and I had somebody saying just a warning you know Lizzie Lowe's on this week so turn her off you know if you don't like spies and all this kind of stuff and I get a little bit sick of that to be honest because I'm trying to work against that like I'm trying to share the wonderful world of spiders not mm-hmm. don't look at this because they're spiders and so I said uh, something along the lines of you know hey it'll be okay I'm just talking about you know all these exciting different spiders like this one and I showed a picture of a, a peacock spider mm-hmm. and then somebody alerted me to the fact that I had just posted a picture of a spider to you know a known arachnophobes um, Twitter page <laughs> and that that was a little bit insensitive so I actually had to I think because I deal with them so often and I don't have any fear of them, I find it really hard to even conceptualize how somebody can Mm. have a phobia of them. But it is a real thing. And um, people really, really can't even, you know, think about them or associate with them without having a reaction. Well, I mean, phobias are irrational kind of by definition right yeah and I, I have trouble dealing with that because i want to throw spider pictures at them and say look how amazing they are mm. and i'm not sure that that's the best way to go about it <laughs> there are people that deal with um exposure therapy for arachnophobes and um so maybe it does work on some level and maybe it's something i should look into as well trying mm. to actually get people past that fear um but until i learn more about it i think maybe i just need to I don't know. I, I felt like showing them pretty exciting spiders was a good way of going about it, but apparently not. Oh, I mean, particularly peacock spiders. They're like your, your gateway drugs for spiders, I, that's right? That's exactly what I think. <laughs> I adore them. I could sit and watch video, videos of peacock spiders all day long. Yeah. And I, everybody I meet, literally, I, I have to show them a picture of a peacock spider. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's, what's been your approach to convincing people... Otherwise, about spiders. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had to do quite a bit of it recently. I was at a pest control conference and I mm. had to convince them that we want to be saving spiders rather than killing them all off. And I had a, an hour-long talk that I could give to these pest control um, industries. And I spent probably half of that just going through the different spiders that we have in Australia, showing them the diversity. There's so many exciting types there's a triangular abdomen spider, which is bright oh. orange, and it's, it's tiny, and it's got all these patterns on its abdomen, and it's just adorable. <laughs> and so I, I really wanted to show them, look, you guys are aware of redbacks, huntsmen, and funnel webs, but the diversity out there is absolutely mind-boggling. There's 40,000 species of, of spider in the world. Mm. Australia's probably got around 8,000 species, which is just orders of magnitude more than you know mammals or birds. And, mm. And the, the different habitats that they live in, the different ways that they, um, that they have babies and that they, you know, that they eat different types of prey and they're just, yeah, they're really diverse and amazing. And I think that's kind of my strategy at the moment is just saying, look, these are the ones you're aware of and you're scared of, scared of but there's all these other different types that are doing all sorts of really mm. useful jobs in the environment as well. I mean, if I tell people that they can have one huntsman and then no cockroaches... It's actually, you know, they, they start to consider it then because mm. people hate cockroaches even more than they hate spiders. So I, I guess I'm passing the blame on a little bit there. But um, I, I kind of put it in the concept of, uh, you know, they're, they're doing a good job in your home, basically. So try and cut them a little slack. And have you had any people 
say that you've convinced them one way or oh, the yeah, other? Oh, yeah, yeah. My whole family, it, to start with. <laughs> they, um, and they're actually kind of my minions now. They go off and tell everybody else to stop killing spiders, which is fantastic. My little sister was absolutely petrified of them for most of her life, and she now puts them in a little cup and she <laughs> takes them outside, which I just, I'm so proud of her. I think it's really fantastic. But so often I get emails of people saying, oh, my mum now, you know, looks yeah. after the spiders. She likes having the one in her window now because of talking to you and listening to me on the radio. And that, yeah, that, that makes me feel really awesome. If mm. people are, even if people are just thinking about it a little more and not instantly reaching for the bug spray, then I've kind of done my job. I, think. Mm. I mean, that's the, the public perception of spiders. Does the media portrayal of spiders? Because, oh, yeah. well... Rather than bearing the lead, you, one of your research findings was about yeah, that was a <laughs> urban spiders being bigger. Yeah, and actually that was a really great exercise for me to see how the media works because mm. um, I, I did find that in urban areas the spiders can grow larger. And so you immediately think that the media are going to jump on this and go, kill it with fire and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and a lot of them did try to, but I spent a lot of time um, contacting Journal, any journalists that contact me, I made the effort to t- call them back, to talk them through the research and to explain to them the implications um, of the research. So the fact that they're getting bigger is actually not a bad thing. It's no more risk for humans. It's actually amazing that anything can survive this well in our cities. Mm. And the implications are that we've actually changed their entire ecosystem and, um, and they're actually benefiting from it, which is amazing. And the vast majority of the journalists I spoke to actually took it on board and Mm. they had a positive biodiversity message in the end. They said, look, you know, spiders are really important for our environments and it's great that some species are doing well even though we've built these cities on top of their natural areas. Mm. Um, Of course, there were still some that um, did the whole scaremongering thing and, you know, it's the end of all times because we've got these giant spiders that are going to kill us all. But in the end, they still reference my paper. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's it's a frustrating where this stuff pops up. I saw it pop up on an Australian Geographic yep. article a couple of weeks ago that was about is about a spider against migration across oceans. They were talking oh, yeah, about yeah. sister yeah, species. Yep. Yeah, and the angle they went with was these spiders are coming across oceans oh. to hunt us down and terrify us. And that this is Australian Geographic. Australian Geographic. Who are supposed to be... No, they should know better than that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure why... No, it's completely unnecessary because it's an amazing story just in itself that yeah. they can actually migrate across countries like that mm. and that there was this one species that was completely not related to everything else. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe it's the case of... Um, I don't know how much the researchers in this instance um, made the effort to actually talk to people about it. And sometimes there's nothing you can do. They're just going to go for that angle mm. because they know that it gets clicks and it gets readers. Um, but I think there is a lot that you can do to point them on the right path. And if you give them a more interesting story than the whole kill them, mm. um, then they're going to go for that anyway. They just want something that people are going to be interested in. And so whenever I talk to journalists now, it's all about... You know, these are the good jobs that spiders are doing. We want them to live in our houses. And mm-hmm. that, that seems to interest people too. They're fascinated that the, by this idea that we can have creepy crawlies living in our houses alongside with us actually working for us. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a novel idea to some people, but it's interesting. Yeah. Well, if you go with the you know, creepy cockroaches and evil spiders, it's kind of just lazy journalism, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. It's easy to say, um, yeah, kill all the spiders. Yeah. Isn't it horrific? But... um. 
yeah, I, I think, yeah, you take the good with the bad, but on whole, most people take it on board. I, I did a, a talkback radio session the other day, and I had five callers, and they all gave me a positive story about spiders. Good. So that made, that made me feel a little bit better about myself. <laughs> So the research they actually did was on these orb-weaving yeah. spiders. Yeah. So what species was it again? Was it... Uh, Nephilopleumapes. So it's the spi- orb-weaving spiders that we have kind of distributed from Queensland right down to towards Melbourne. And there's a different species that goes along the bottom part of Australia as mm-hmm. well that's an orb-weaver. And then there's the giant version, which is up in Queensland. And they're the ones that you always see the photos of the spider eating the um, snake and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Or the, um, eating the birds that have been caught in their webs. Mm-hmm. So these are big spiders that we're talking about. And so when we talk about them getting bigger, it, it was a pretty impressive picture um, <laughs> of, of this giant spider that's doing really well in the middle of Sydney. I mean, what was the take message? Why do we think they're bigger? In urban areas. Yeah, the main idea, I didn't test this, but my main theory is it's to do with the urban heat island effect. So in cities, we've got so much concrete and we've taken away a lot of the vegetation and it kind of sucks up all the heat and it retains heat. So it doesn't get as cold overnight and it actually gets hotter during the day. And so um, because spiders need that warmth um, Mm -hmm. to develop, they can actually, uh, when, when it's a bit warmer, they can put more of their energy towards growing and getting big and fat um there's also probably just more food for them in the city i mm. mean we've got heaps of rubbish and that kind of stuff we attract flies and moths and all that kind of stuff especially with um having lots of lights on at night mm-hmm. some of the biggest spiders i found were in the botanic gardens in sydney right in the middle of the city mm. and um they probably get a lot of um just big insects at night that are attracted to light yeah they just get more food yeah, yeah i can imagine that would have been fodder for a journalist even to go that Frankenstein angle of oh, yeah. modern society creating monster spiders yeah, and stuff. It, it crops up <laughs> a lot in that kind of way actually um, yeah. because um, actually something I'm really fascinated with is the way that animals adapt to living in cities because there's heaps of different animals well, which yeah, there's have the... just changed completely in, in urban areas which is mm. amazing. I mean that's the immediate importance of the research. Yeah exactly. It's is it yeah. frustrating? Is it frustrating to get that message through? I think it's sometimes difficult to demonstrate why it's not a bad thing, mm. if that makes sense. Um, in some cases, it is actually a bad thing. I mean, we've got drastic reductions in biodiversity in urban areas, so we are really affecting the natural areas, and it's usually a bad thing for, mm. the, for um, native species. Um, but what my angle really is is, we're trying to understand how some species can cope with living in cities so that we can make cities a better place for all species to live. And, mm. of course, that leads them to thinking, well, you trying to bring more bugs and spiders into cities, which is exactly what yeah, I want. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that's really the end goal of what I do is I want to have as many different species living alongside us in cities as we possibly can. Mm. And um, sometimes it's a little bit hard to sell that to the public. Mm. But um, I think... If you, you really push the idea that the city has to be an ecosystem just like any other ecosystem, and if we kind of if we rip out three quarters of the species that would usually be there, um, even the, the grass and the trees that we've got planted that we rely on in cities, you know, just to make it a nice place, hmm. they're not going to be able to survive if we don't have that balance. So. If you really take a step back and say, look, you live in a city, you want it to be a nice place to live, you want there to be some green there, we actually have to work with 
nature and with these insects and spiders to make it a, a functional place for everyone. So do you have like a tips and tricks for homeowners to... Yeah, well, <laughs> the, really the first thing is just to stop using pesticides. <laughs> I've met so many people that do broad spectrum pesticide sprays through their whole garden every year or even wow. every six months. And if you think of everything that's killing, mm. I mean, it's not just the cockroaches and the spiders. It's the, you know, the beneficial insects like mantids and all those kind mm. of things um, and bees and wasps. And it just kills absolutely everything. And I don't understand why that's an attractive thing to someone to have a completely dead garden. Um, that really makes me sad, actually, when I hear that that's just the general thing for people to do. So um, the, the first thing to do is kind of back off the pesticides and just let your garden do its own thing. Mm. If you really want to encourage um, a diverse um, ecosystem of different kind of insects and spiders in your garden, you can, um, it's better to have more vegetation. So obviously a back garden that's just grass isn't going to support many different types. Mm -hmm. If you've got lots of different types of vegetation, you're introducing lots of habitats for all sorts of different insects. So that's the best thing you can do, yeah. really. It's funny now that you mentioned that I don't think I've ever bought like a can of no, me neither. insect, you know, yeah. mortine or anything in mm. my life. But these people are actually <laughs> hiring um, pest control contractors to come into their gardens and spray nasty stuff. And, uh, and I mean, all the pest control people say that it's harmless and that kind of stuff, but it, it's not. I mean, they're using chemicals and they're going into the environment and you've got your kids playing around the back garden and stuff. I'd much rather have my kid come across a couple of spiders than be playing in grass that's covered in pesticides. Mm -hmm. It's such a weird thing that people think that that risk is okay, having the chemicals out there. Yeah, well, you just got back from a pest control conference. Mm, yeah. How was that, seeing the other side? It was, it was really weird, actually. I was very, <laughs> very shocked to be invited in the first place. And then I had a step back and I started thinking about it. I really wasn't sure if I would go. But I had a look at the invite list and I was one of two women on a, you know, a keynote speakers. At, there was 40 different speakers basically and there's two or three women. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, if I don't go, they're just going to invite somebody else. Mm. And I've got the opportunity here to A, be a women representative in a very highly male-dominated industry mm. and B, to actually tell people about some of the science surrounding um the benefits of biodiversity, but basically instead of just killing everything. Yeah. And I wanted to see how much of a focus they did have on, I guess, sustainable um, pest control rather than broad spectrum pest control, mm. which would be just killing everything. Um, a lot of what I saw was very focused on the products that they're selling. It was an industry conference. Yeah. So um, it was very much, this is our termite um you know control mechanism and this is what we're selling mm. um, but there were a couple of different scientists there all talking about their particular organisms that they study um, there was another good friend of mine Cameron Webb who was talking about um, mosquitoes and um, I really like his approach because he he says look they're Australian native species and they belong here as well we just have to learn how to to work with them basically you know mm. they cause a lot of problems but they have a right to be here as well uh, and this is how we can work towards managing it on a broad scale. Yeah. So I really think that they tried their best to um, to get the right representation there. And um, I was really happy to be there. I got a really good response from my talk. Mm. Lots of people came up to me afterwards and um, said they really enjoyed it and they loved hearing about the different types of spiders. So 
I think if I can keep doing that, then maybe it'll get through. Yeah. Yeah. I actually got invited to that conference because of a... um, I had some dealings with a pest control company in Sydney who specialises in um, ecological pest control. So they don't use chemicals unless they absolutely have to. Mm. And they encourage um, ecosystem balance in back gardens, basically. So they won't kill spiders and things like that. Um, they've got a really great approach. And so because they were the ones that um, referred me on in the first place, I thought I had a, yeah. a good chance of actually getting through to some people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good approach rather than, you know, fighting the yeah. the industry is to, I don't know, infiltrate from the inside yeah. or, or you know, change the culture. Because it is an industry and they're there to make money. Mm. So And people are always going to have pest problems. They're always going to have termites and cockroaches. And they're always going to want the quickest and easiest solution to that, which is chemicals. Mm. Um, So it's a bit hard when you're working against the market, really. Mm. Um, But I guess that's why I do science communication as well, because I really, yeah, then maybe people will start thinking twice about what they want and then the market will change. Mm. And um, these pest control companies won't have to focus so much on just eliminating insects. They can start talking about, yeah, you know, trying to encourage beneficial insects as well. Mm. You mentioned the gender issues in these sorts of industries. Yeah. I was going to ask because well, we did a we did a live podcast last week, and one of the audience questions we had was about uh, issues that have come up in your career to do with gender, and we didn't. I felt a bit bad because we didn't really get to address it mm-hmm. in the live podcast. But I don't know. I, I can't really talk about it because. I'm a guy and I, yeah. I don't, I don't know, the thing about being a guy is you don't experience your privilege in that way. Yeah, you can see it happening, but it doesn't always make as much sense from the other side. Yeah, I, I can look at it on a, a demographic level, yeah. but I don't live it day to day. As a woman in science, is this something that you actually experience subjectively? Yeah, it's been a little bit weird for me, actually, because I wasn't even really aware of it so much in the earlier stages of my career, which makes me very, very lucky. Mm. Um, I think that during my undergraduate, I wouldn't have seen any differences um, in the way that I was treated, but I've become more aware of it in the last couple of years. I think that I've been very lucky in the sense that I've always had very, very strong mentors Mm. um, who are women who have kind of not just um, shown me the kind of academic that I want to be and the kind of science I want to do, but shown me that it's possible to support a very diverse um, group in academia. Um, So as far as personal experiences go, I've been very, very lucky and I've had very good support. Mm. Um, But I'm much more aware of the... the, um, just the situations that other people are in and the prejudice that some people do face as well Mm. um so yeah i think that's another reason that i i do a lot of school visits and Mm -hmm. i really love being the spider lady that turns up and these (laughs) kids come up to me and they do you really study spiders Mm. and um the little girls that come up to me afterwards and say i want to study spiders too (laughs) and um yeah i think that that's really important for me to be out there and not just to be Dr. Lizzie Lowe, you know, I'm a scientist and I'm Mm. a reasonably young woman out there, which I think is important for them to see, but also just to see that I'm not scared of spiders. I absolutely adore them and that um, the girls don't have to be scared of them. Mm. I guess that's one way that I have kind of gotten a a lot of 
I guess the, the gender card a little bit with everybody says oh you're a woman and you're studying spiders and I look at them and I'm like when I go to arachnology conferences most of the prominent professors I see are women yeah most of the spider people I know yeah, are women exactly yeah some of the best or well, most of the best spider researchers are women and um I just don't see why there has to be that division there. You know, why can't women study spiders? I've actually heard butterfly guys getting that. Oh, okay. People ask the them, and they're, they're dudes and they work on butterflies. Yeah. What's that all about? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Get over it, people. <laughs> Seriously. I even just noticed teaching undergrad biology and you'd have a prep class and you'd bring out spider specimens. Yeah. And... I got really annoyed because all of the girls in the class would squeal and yeah, go spiders. And yeah. it, it's like, you can't all possibly feel that way. Mm. Are you just conforming that's, to a stereotype? That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and also the teachers are really great, the ones I go and visit, but some of them really aren't helping either. Like They will react <laughs> so adversely to the spiders I bring in. And uh, of course the kids are going to be scared if the teacher's squealing. Yeah, they're going to mimic yeah. that behavior. And, uh, yeah, so... Like, I love talking to kids because they they do love creepy crawlies. And even if they start off with a bit of a eel yuck kind of reaction, they very quickly get over it. And um, I very rarely have a kid that's not quite happily playing around and looking at spiders by the end of the session. So mm. I guess that's kind of one area where I feel like I can have quite a big impact. Mm. Is by If they go home, they tell their parents about how cool spiders are and all the different types and no, we can't spray the garden anymore because we'll kill all the spiders. Maybe I can, um, you know, approach this problem from the ground up mm. as such. I mean, I don't think it's just arachnology in particular. I get the feeling that maybe just in Australia or the communities I'm in, you know, biology, behavioral ecology, it's been very progressive yeah. in combating gender issues. Exactly, and I think that's why I haven't had so much exposure to the negative experiences mm. either. Um, so I guess it's nice to be in a space that is so supportive, um, but at the same time you do just have to be aware of what's going on. And I think Twitter's really great for that. I've um, It's really opened up my eyes to the the different research approaches that are out there and just some of the stuff that goes on so that if it does happen to me, I'm aware of it and I've got some kind of tactics to approach it. Mm. So do we ring the, the newspapers and say we fixed it? Australian behavioural ecology, problem yeah, solved? We're set. No. <laughs> I think we've all probably got work to do. And not even just with gender, but diversity, I think, is a really big issue. Um, yeah. Especially, uh, I mean, we've got so many um, great diversity in international students and um, people from different backgrounds that are coming up as, un- as undergraduates, but they don't always um, move up through the academic systems mm. either. I think there's a real disadvantage for some people there, and um, I would love to see more diversity, especially at scientific conferences and things. Mm. You go to so many conferences, and they're very, very mono- monoculture kind of... Particularly in a place like Sydney. Yeah. The universities yeah. are very white. They are, yeah. <laughs> and um, I really think that has to change because Australia isn't. We're diverse and um, we need to see that reflected in academia as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm branching on from gender stuff. I want to talk about motherhood, yeah. Lizzie, because, <laughs> because you're doing it. Yeah. You're living the dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Uh, uh, I'd dream if I could sleep. <laughs> Well, that sort of academic pathway and doing a PhD, yeah. if you follow it from you know, 
undergrad into postgrad into PhD. By the time you're finishing your yeah, PhD, people are getting really to that sort of stage yeah. where they're sort of around the 30s wanting mm-hmm. to do these things and lots of people are in a position where they feel like they might have to wait until they have a permanent job. Yeah, which is understandable. I mean, it's hard having a kid when you don't have a permanent job mm. or any kind of solid future. But you're doing it and I, I really have admired the fact that you you know there's people there's people that have kids and change lots to accommodate the kid whereas you've had a child and you've been to Perth to New Zealand back to Perth to Sydney again on short-term contracts yeah I haven't when you say they accommodate their children, it makes me feel like maybe I'm just dragging my kid along with me. <laughs> maybe accommodate was the wrong word. No, no, it's, it's, I, yeah. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, and I definitely have. We have tried to um, kind of keep going with the flow. So to give you the full story, I, um, we, we thought about having kids really early in my PhD, which would have been a crazy idea. I mean, a lot of, I know a yeah. lot of people do it. <laughs> but I uh, ended up having my son two weeks after I submitted my PhD. That gave you a solid deadline. It really did. And and I got there. So I was very, very happy to have that out of the way. In the end, um, because I was doing my PhD in Sydney, I actually moved back to Perth as well um, because I couldn't stand the idea of having a baby away from my family. And so within the period of six weeks, we moved from Sydney to Perth we bought a house, I handed in my PhD, and we had a baby. It's kind of like the biggest <laughs> life moments that you can possibly have all within such a short amount of time, which I can't say I recommend, but it did all happen, and it mm. worked. And now I, I got offered a postdoc in New Zealand um, quite soon after I had the baby, and um, that was a really hard decision to make because mm. we were in a reasonably good position in Perth. My husband had just started a new job, and... Um, and we, I was on maternity leave. I didn't really have any future plans because mm. um, I had nothing else in the pipeline. And in the end, we decided to go for it and to move to New Zealand for six months. And we moved with my six-month-old at that stage. And he's been amazing. He kind of just has accommodated everything along yeah. the way. He's been very, very versatile. I guess they are at that age. Mm. Um, and I think we probably bit off a little bit more than we can chew. Um, we had a really great research stay in New Zealand and then we went on holiday afterwards and my husband and I, we kept on like staying in backpackers and doing all the kind of <laughs> traveling that we usually would, except we had a one year old by that stage. Yeah. And so this poor little guy has been dragged through backpackers in Southern New Zealand for three weeks, but we all survived and we had a great time. Mm. Um, it was a real challenge, but, um, yeah, we did really enjoy it. And then, of course, we moved back to Perth again because that's where my family is. And I, we thought that we'd be there forever because we bought a house. And I just couldn't find a job. Um, yeah. I, I tried really hard to kind of integrate myself into the research community there. But when you're starting from scratch and you don't have the networks, mm. it's really, really difficult. You can kind of, there's only so much you can throw yourself at people saying, hey, I'm here and I do exciting things Mm. before it starts to get you down a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I did that for four or five months. And then I got offered this position back in Sydney again. And it was, a, again, a really hard decision because I just settled my whole family back yeah. in Perth. My poor husband's been dragged around three times by now and he's on his third job. Mm. And, um, but when we, when we sat down to think about it, we knew Sydney well because we'd lived here before. And um, when it comes to networks, there's just invaluable when you're a scientist. You just need to have people to work with and to mm. bounce ideas off. And I had so many people in Sydney that I could instantly work with and get along with. 
Yeah. And so in the end, we just thought, right, we'll do it. We'll pack up and move again. And we've all settled in Sydney mm. now. Multiple universities in the one place. We hire exactly. It makes of... a huge difference. And I think my family don't think I'm ever coming back to Perth. <laughs> uh, in my heart, I would love to. But when I look at where I want my career to be going, I think Sydney's probably the place we'll be for a little while. Yeah. And it's, it's a really hard thing for people in science because I constantly feel like I'm separated between where my heart is and where my job is mm. um, because I would love to be living somewhere else with my family. But, yeah, yeah uh, I think my job is such an important part of who I am that mm. it's worth following. Um, I do definitely have to recognize how important it is to have a partner that is on board with that as well, though. Yeah. Um, my poor husband, as I said, he's on to his third or fourth job in a year and a half now and um, he's kind of feels like his t career trajectory has gone flat rather than he hasn't been able to mm. work upwards because he's been always changing um, can I ask what he does he's an electronic engineer yeah so he did his PhD and that's when we met in Perth yeah um, luckily he's moved out of academia now and he's in industry <laughs> so we kind of we're not doing that two-body problem with two academics mm. trying to find jobs which is just a nightmare. I know so many people that are living on opposite sides of the world to their partner yeah. because of academia, and that's just horrific. I can't, I can't imagine the strain that that puts on them. Mm. Um, and I couldn't do that. So I've been really lucky in the fact that my husband could work remotely when we went to New Zealand, and he actually took on uh, the majority of the childcare while we were there as well, mm. which was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Not just for me; it was good for them too. <laughs> um, and he has made a lot of sacrifices for me to keep on traveling around the country, mm. basically, and internationally. Um, so I think that staying in Sydney for a little while is probably in his best interests as well. This yeah, last yeah. move was definitely only made because it was a really great opportunity for both of us. Because yeah. I think you sometimes you really just have to take a step back and say, you know, this has to be equal. You know, you can't just keep doing this for me because on the off chance that I'll be able to have an academic career. Mm. You know, every step that we move is a small step for me up the ladder, but it's no guarantee that I'm going to end up here. So yeah. um, that's a really hard conversation to have as well when all this effort you could be putting in could kind of eventuate to nothing. Mm. But um, I think we just take it one step at a time and just keep doing what we like doing and make sure that we're, we talk about it and that we both understand what the other person wants and needs and mm. yeah get through it i mean talking about the sort of sacrifices that academics will make to make their careers work yeah. I, f I feel like in the past people made these sacrifices because academia was sort of a, a dream job where you had lots of freedom mm -hmm. to be a, a thinker and a mover and a shaker and you, know, you had your secure tenured positions yeah. is, is academia still that oh, I kind of feel like a lot of the sacrifices that were made in the past were the women that were at home. Mm. Um, they just gave up their careers and they could move wherever they liked and they looked after the kids and the men went off and had their academic career. Mm. Um, and, of course, they were good positions. And I, I still do see academia as a really great place as far as flexibility goes. Mm. I mean, I can... Um, take the time that I need to look after my kid and all that kind of stuff. So I, I do think that it is still a, a goal worth achieving because we can have great impact with the research that we do 
and have a really satisfying you know teaching career and things as well I really do think it's it's still worth striving for maybe not quite as idealistic as it used to be with the men at home with their (laughs) women looking after their children and um, complete academic freedom but I don't think we should have complete academic freedom anyway I think that we should be working towards something that's going to benefit everybody yeah so um yeah it is definitely changed but I'm and the, the competition that it takes to kind of get to the top is obviously ruthless Mm. um but from what i'm seeing it's usually the people that are well connected and that are kind of nice and good at networking (laughs) and good at getting along with people that do usually make it to the top so that's true yeah yeah, i hope so too i mean it's not always the case but um it generally is that you know if you're an all-round good person and you're doing awesome science then you've got a chance at least yeah so <laughs> yeah i mean it's i don't know it's easy for me to sort of talk very casually about the whole <laughs> yeah. family stuff because i don't have kids but i'm obviously yeah. uh, getting to that sort of age where yeah. it's, a, it's a big issue well that's the thing postdoc is the time when start pe- people start thinking about having kids yeah and, and that's it's when, the you're time least when you're on six stable. month one year contracts and, um, yeah, I'm very lucky that I've got a two-year position now so I can actually settle my family down for two years. But I'm thinking in another three years my kid's going to start going to school and then if I have to move again, am I going to have to rip him mm. away from all his friends and, and move him again? Or do I just do I give up at that stage if I can't find a job and stay wherever his school is? Mm. Um, it is really hard. And then, you know, do I have a second one? I've got one now and it's just starting to work and I'm just starting to get my career back on track. Yeah. Um, I always thought I'd have two, but at the same time, if I had another one now, you know, actually getting my career back on track would be very difficult. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's so many things that you have to kind of balance and and just think about the long-term implications <laughs> of how this is actually going to work. So is, is waiting for the perfect time an option or is there it's, no such thing? Yeah, well, that's exactly what I went through during my PhD. I'm like, do I wait? I knew I wanted a family and I was in a great relationship. I mean... And in the end, we just thought, let's not wait, you know, Mm. we want to have a family, let's just make it work. And I guess we're the kind of people that have just kind of like, we'll go with the flow and we'll make it work when it happens. Mm. Um, But I really think that if we had had a kid when we first started trying and I had a baby during my PhD, I wouldn't have finished. Mm. I think so it's a bit of luck involved as well, I guess. I would have really, really have struggled to... um, finish off a PhD with a baby and I think the actual timing worked very well for us because I had the time and the space to kind of get my head around being a new mum before I started my postdoc and I had a very chilled out six months postdoc in New Zealand with amazing support Mm. Um, I think that's actually that's the number one best thing you can do is find people to work with that will support you will support having a, a balanced lifestyle and will be a good example for you as well Mm. You know, if you're working with someone that stays until 7 o'clock at night, even if they don't expect it from you, you expect it from yourself because you're seeing it. Mm. So I think that that's been a huge factor in my success is been working with people that um, really, really um, put an emphasis on having a, a balanced lifestyle. Mm. It's so important. Speaking of, I, I had one more question, but how are you going for time? You've got a. I'm to pick him up from daycare. You've got daycare duties today. I do actually reasonably <laughs> soon. I'm very sorry. Right. I've got to catch the train to go pick him up from his German bilingual daycare centre. Okay. 
my husband's German, and so when we moved to Sydney, we had this opportunity to send him to a bilingual daycare. Yeah. He's only 18 months old. He doesn't even talk yet. But um, <laughs> we thought that if he can hear a bit more German, then maybe that's a benefit for him as well. You know, yeah. It's got to be good for everyone, so we thought we'll give it a try. All right. Well, I should probably let you go and do that. <laughs> if people want to find out more about your research, you have a website? I do, yep. It's lizzielow.net. And the best way probably is to contact me on Twitter. You're a tweet fiend. I'm a bit of a tweet fiend. I quite like um, interacting with people that way. So send me spider pictures and tell me all your good spider stories. Yeah, that's just at Lizzie Lowe. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lizzie. Thank thank you. It's been really fun. And thank you guys for listening. You can find us on Twitter with the handle at NCG Science or on Facebook or ncgscience.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. That was fun. <laughs> Great, good. <laughs> You're good at this. <laughs> Thanks, Lizzie. <laughs>